I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, award-winning novelist Alexander Maxick joins journalist and associate director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, Anne Taylor Fleming, for an intimate conversation about Maxick's recent essay in The New Yorker, My Father's Voice from Paris. Maxick lives in Hawaii with his novelist wife, Madri Vijay, and their six-month-old daughter, Ella. Sheltering at home due to the coronavirus pandemic, he found himself unable to travel halfway across the world to Paris, where a 76-year-old father had become seriously ill with COVID-19. All he could do was speak to his father over the phone, listen to his weakened voice, read, and be with his infant daughter. And ultimately, write this beautiful essay that he discusses and reads from here. Xander, it's Anne in uh, L.A., and I'm sorry I missed you the other day. A storm blew through your um, secluded spot on Maui, and you couldn't get yeah. a cell phone. So That's right. you're, you're, you're really sequestered. We, we are. Our internet comes through, the, through a satellite, and um, cell signals are, are pretty shaky when, when the storms come through. And, and what, is, what is life like there now? I mean, you are in a house with your um, novelist wife, Madri, who's a fabulous novelist like you, and a six-month-old. So how did the days run? Um, well, lately we don't get a lot of sleep. Um, Ella right. has, has taken to wa- waking up now three times for a while there. It was a, we're, we're having a good stretch, but now. Um, so we wake up early around five, and... Um, we sort of take care of Ella together until um, about 8.30, and then I go to work and work until um, about three and a half, four hours, and then I go up and, and relieve Madri, and, and we switch sort of after, after lunch. Um, and and that's, pretty much our, that's pretty much our life right now. We don't go out very often, and right. um, when we do, you know, 
we, we go to the local grocery store or sometimes um, when we're feeling adventurous, we, we make it to Costco. Well, one of the things, and we'll talk about the piece at great length. I mean, the reason I wanted to reach out to you is because of this just lovely piece you've written in The New Yorker recently about your father. And I, I don't want to preview it because I want them to hear your voice about it before they hear my voice about it. Um, but I'm conscious that there you are in a beautiful, pretty safe place. And fear intrudes. You know, from across the globe, there is a sign that the pandemic is real and, in fact, has hit your own family. Didn't that seem so weird that it sort of just intruded out of nowhere? It, it, it really does. Um, here, it's, it's very easy to, to pretend that, that the world uh, doesn't exist outside of our, you know, tiny little island. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of that is by design. We both of us left um, a series of, of cities and, and now are here because we, I think, wanted to put our heads down and not be distracted by, by the world. And now, of course, that feels almost, um, well, the, the, the fortune, we're, we're sort of constantly reminded of how lucky we are to have this little bunker. Um, and yet, yes, as, as you point out, there's, there's really no there's really no way to avoid it. I mean, from from yeah. you know the little town that's that's five minutes drive from here to to the places where the people we love are, are living, which includes um, obviously Paris and 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 for for mother's family in in Bangalore. And are they well and safe? Uh, they 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 are. I mean, but you know, within within reason, we just don't know you know what's what's coming. Right. You know, it occurs to me listening to you, um, and one of the reasons I so love the piece, you know, we're all tethered to fear, you know, we're, we, even in yeah. the safest of places. I mean, you're in a very seemingly safe place, as am I in West Los Angeles, but you're tethered, you're umbilically tethered to fear. And certainly if you have parents who are of a, of a certain age, it's just there, you know, you wake up yeah. in, in, in an idyllic place with a beautiful six month old whose pictures I've seen, who is ridiculously <laughs> adorable. And then suddenly the recognition as her life begins that there's this peril out there. Yeah, I mean it's strange because I'm I'm sort of conscious of it of, of, of because of because of both a, a very very young child in our house and you know and also my parents getting older and and yeah. and obviously this ordeal that my dad's been through mm. um, and one certainly informed the other. There was no way to sort of think about you know what my dad was doing um, over the course of the last month and a half um, and not look at my daughter and think you know just how vulnerable she is. And it's, it's, yeah, um, makes sense. I don't think I would have written, frankly, I don't think I would have written the essay without, you know, without both of those, those people in my, in my life. Yeah. It's a different, different ends of the time zone. I'm going to ask you now, I'm going to turn to the piece, which is really the thing that has, um, occasioned me to reach out to you. I've read a lot of pieces during the last months. I've been a journalist forever. I've read wonderful pieces. I've read heartbreaking pieces. But something in the piece that you have written about your father got to me on, on a most deep level. And part of it, obviously, is that I know you both and um, have come to care for you both. But I think it's also, I, I've tried to puzzle why it grabbed me so. And I think it's a grown son writing about a grown father. 
I, I see so many personal essays and have read so many, and so many are by women, and I have written my fair share. But to listen to a grown man write about another grown man and a father with the tenderness and the very delicate revelations um, just just moved me to turn to you and to ask you to talk about it. And um, I'd love, I think, for you to read some of it because I, I really want them to hear your own voice talking about the piece. Okay, sure. Thank you for, for saying that. The, the title of the piece is, is My Father's Voice from Paris. It is evening here in Hawaii and morning in Paris where my parents are, both of them infected with what is almost certainly COVID-19. My mother suffered symptoms first, but has come out unscathed. When I call, as I do twice a day, she answers the phone by saying, Nurse Ratchet, how may I help you? My father has been struck by the illness far more severely. His temperature is 104 degrees, and still neither of my parents has managed to see a doctor. On the phone, my father sounds frail and frightened and occasionally incoherent. Promise me, I say, if your breathing gets worse, you'll call the paramedics. Yes, he says, though, I don't believe him. But then what, he asks. The problem is you go in and you don't come out. Again, I can hear that fear which shakes me more than his coughing, his thin voice, or his inability to finish words. My father is 76 years old. In ordinary times, he would be in a hospital with an IV in his arm, and I would be somewhere over the Atlantic on my way to look after him. But now all I can think to do is call my friends in Paris and ask for their help. Over the following days, these friends who have problems of their own arrange a medical exam for my father. They march across the city to leave food on my parents' doorstep, call to say hello and introduce themselves, and offer whatever they can to a pair of sick, housebound strangers. In the mornings, when I wake up, I call to say goodnight. My mom is always the same, always unflappable, bright, and funny. When it's night here, I call to see how my dad has slept and how he's feeling. The answer is never encouraging. He is constantly thirsty. His skin hurts. He has no desire to eat. My mom tells me terrible stories like their brief comedies. He was a very bad patient. I found him on the floor of the bathroom and had to slide him out on a bath mat like a sled. My dad gets on the phone and sounds increasingly strange. At least you don't live in the skin of your ancient grandfather, he says which is not the kind of thing I've ever heard him say. <laughs> when I ask what he means, he starts to cough. As I listen to him trying to control his breath, my infant daughter studies me with her outsized eyes. I wonder when she'll see her grandfather again, and I force my mind away from the obvious question that follows. Hmm. Is this the first time you really understood your father's fragility He's suddenly of an age, and he has been a healthy person, and suddenly a across the globe, I mean, he is potentially leaving you in a way. And your, your sense of that is, it's beautifully understated, but it's very palpable. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the first time I've ever thought of my father as fragile. Um, but I think it's the first time I've ever confronted 
the possibility of his death in a, in a, in a real way. Um, it's, you know, my dad is, is in good shape. He's, he's a runner. Uh, he takes care of himself. He prides himself on, um, you know, on his physical fitness and has always done so. And I, and it's, it's, I, I've been very lucky in that, you know, both of my parents are that way, um, healthy and, and active. But this is the first time, he, I've never ever heard him that way. I've never heard him so weak. And so, you know, I think he's a, he's a proud, if not occasionally vain man. Um, <laughs> And I and and he's you know he he's made he's he's made every effort to appear uh, invincible to me, as is true of so many fathers. And I, I suppose this was the first time I saw him, or heard him rather, abandon any pretense at at invincibility. The vanity was gone altogether. He just sort of. Allowed himself to be uh, weak in front of me, mm -hmm. and I could see that weakness. And in many ways, it made me feel um, closer to him because I don't—I honestly don't know. I think maybe here and there I've seen it, but I don't know that I saw it with his permission. If you—if you know what I mean, he—he—he he, he, he tried so hard and for so long to appear without flaw. Mm -hmm. And I think he, he gave up and, 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 and who knows, you know, I don't know if, if, he, if he consciously did that, but, but I think it was the disease that, that, that made it impossible for him to pretend. And, and I felt a, a, there was a tenderness that, I, that I, I, I saw there or felt that was, it was a, of a variety um, unfamiliar to me beforehand. Wow, it, it, that is so amazing to me. And, and your own tenderness in kind is very palpable. I assume perhaps you were attached or understood your own tenderness as a new father. And I'm conscious of the deep tenderness you're directing towards your father. Had you done that in his direction before? Um, I... Yeah, I, I think so. My dad and I have been have been very very close um, for a long time, mm -hmm. but I, I think there's a, there, there there's some in the last I don't know five years ten years it's hard for me to say but the quality of that closeness has changed at least from 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 my standpoint and I think mm -hmm. a lot of that is to do with 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 his age and like it or not, um, he, he is not, you know, he's not who he was for, for, for better and for worse. Um, you know, despite his insistence on, on running as long and as quickly as he always has, you know, I, I see him, I hate to use the word diminished, but I suppose that is the, the, the truest way to describe um, the way he is now. He's just a different, and I suppose some, on some level, the way we all become weaker than he was. And in that weakness, I think I've, I, have, I have been able to see him in a way that I, I, I never have. One of the many reasons I so resonate to the essay is it has what I call an elegant restraint. 
the feelings are there. So let me now ask you to read a few more paragraphs. Throughout these days, I am making my way through Orphic Paris, Henry Cole's portrait of the city and of his time living there. I suspect I'd love the book even in the best of times, but under the current circumstances, it is becoming something like speaking to my father or listening to him. My father who loves Paris more than any other place on earth. My parents first visited the city in 1968 on their honeymoon. Since they retired 15 years ago, they've rented a small apartment in the Latin Quarter for a few months each winter. My mother is busy and happy in the city but my father's feelings for it border on the spiritual. He's never had many close friends and I think Paris itself has become a companion. Like Cole, my father spends much of his time alone in cafes, walking, visiting museums. Even if he would never admit this to me, I'm certain he's often lonely there. Maybe it is not the devastating variety of loneliness, but something gentler, the kind we feel when we cannot fully inhabit a place we love. Orphic Paris is often tinged with that same kind of loneliness, though Cole, like my father, does not characterize it that way. He writes, I hate having to apologize for or defend my inwardness. It was the American poet Marianne Moore who said that solitude was the cure for loneliness. Before the coronavirus shut Paris down, my father spent hours watching men play petanque in the park. I knew he loved to join them and often encouraged him to do so. He always rejected the idea and I quickly retreated. It was too dizzying to try to do for him what he so often did for me when I was a boy, what I may one day do for my daughter, go on, play with the others. Reading Cole, I keep seeing my father. That Orphic Paris begins in a city threatened by avian flu only magnifies the confusion. The expensive medication Tamiflu is not yet available, Cole writes, except to those already afflicted with the deadly virus. I sleep so little now. The more exhausted I become, the more trouble I have distinguishing one mind from another. It's as if Cole is recounting not his own memories, observations, and desires, but my father's. Meanwhile, my father soaks his sheets with sweat. No matter what he does, he cannot get enough water. He tells me that he doesn't know what is and is not a hallucination, what he said to me and what he hasn't. In a text message, he sends a single comma. One morning, though now I can't remember whose, he says, it's as if everything has been stolen from us, from you, from the city, but thank you, thank you. For what, I ask? For your friends, he says. They sent a doctor, they brought ice cream, they keep writing and calling. It, it occurs to me almost, Sandra, that this is like a small novel. You know, in the first part you read, we see your father, we see the dilemma, and now you peel back some of the layers of who he is, the loneliness, and seeing him in the streets of Paris. I, I it just, I see him walking, and I think of the role reversal of you looking at him not joining the games, um, and mm. your childhood of him, you know, parents looking at their children and were you conscious of feeling that when you were writing it it's just so evocative yeah i don't know i don't know whether or not i was it's, it's, i i really wrote this in, in in such a in such a strange state um 
of 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 exhaustion and sadness mm-hmm. and 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 fear. Um, I, I think it, w- it would be dishonest to say that I had some some real intention as I was writing it. I mean, I, I began writing it because I, without any real idea that it would be published or I'd want to publish it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote it because I, I truly had, I didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I've always written in, in response um, to, to, you know, to, 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 to uh, I don't know, terror or joy or, or, or <laughs> desperation or whatever. Um, the big things. But, I, I, but, but certainly seeing, you know, looking at my daughter, um, who is an only child, and I, I'm, I'm certain will remain that way. Um, and, I, you know, I'm an only child and, and my dad is an only child. And certainly there's a continuity there. I think only children generally are um, both more at ease alone um, and also probably tend to loneliness uh, more than more than those children with siblings. Um, and and I and I it's 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 very it was very odd to in the times I was literally looking from my computer to Ella and back as I was writing this. And it was all very dizzying, you know, the the mm-hmm. various layers of 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 sort of imagining and 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 understanding and and um Anyway, I'm, you know, I, I think I struggle to answer the question partly because I, I, I always have a hard time trying to describe or explain what I've written. You know, when you write something true, you're down in, you're not, you're not mm. conscious that you're describing, you know, a certain emotion or a role reversal or whatever. Read the lovely end of the piece and we will ask okay. very um, restrained and elegant questions to, to, to marry up with okay. the restrained and elegant piece you've written. All right. <laughs> On the Rue du Cardinal des Moines, not so far from where my parents are holed up, There is a woman who leans out her window and dangles a can from a string. At all hours, she calls out to the street. Mostly she wants cigarettes, sometimes bread. When I'm in Paris, I stay in an apartment nearby and have bought her cigarettes on occasion. But mostly, like everyone else in the neighborhood, I ignore her. It's been more than a year since I've heard this woman's adamant voice. Yet, as I come to the end of Cole's memoir, I hear it constantly. I dreamed of her last night. Why? Because she, like my parents, like so many in the city, is locked away, half mad, alone, dangling a pail to the streets, begging for help? The metaphor is too obvious. It makes me cringe. Not knowing what else to do to help my father, I make a small package for him. Powdered electrolytes to quench his thirst, granola bars for energy, an old paperback edition of Down and Out in Paris and London to make him laugh, the copy of Orphic Paris with my notes and markings. For a moment, I hesitate before packing the book. I don't want to give up such a beautiful thing, which in reading I've made part of my father, but I drop it in, seal the box, and hand it over so that it can make the very journey I cannot. Cole ends his book with a list of brief paragraphs, each beginning, j'aime. He loves poets and friends, gestures and places, expressions and objects. One of his loves is Rilke. J'aime Rilke, Cole writes. His poems speak in a low, calm voice. He says in his book of hours, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. 
The man who owns the little postal shop in town is so kind when I tell him where and why I want to send my odd collection of objects. He's wearing blue latex gloves as he meticulously prepares the package. He insists on giving me a discount. I drive back home to my wife and daughter and imagine my father looking out over the city he loves, reading Cole, quoting those familiar lines from Rilke. My father, who, when I speak to him before bed, tells me that he has eaten a bowl of ice cream and that his fever has fallen to 101. Just keep going, I think. Just keep going. I thought I would just pause for a minute and let, and let the beauty of the end speak for itself. Um, I guess, first off, how is your father now, is the question. He's, he's, he's much better, thank you. Um, in, the, in, the, in the weeks after this was published, he, he made a, a miraculous uh, recovery, or what struck me as miraculous. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he just, uh, a couple days ago, uh, made it back home after a, 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 a few days of traveling. And what was his reaction to this piece? Um, you know, I've, I, 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 I think he was very moved by it. I, I, I don't know. I haven't seen his face. Um, I think, you know, whatever um, humiliation he may have felt um, from, from the, the public airing of his, of his various frailties, um, I think were made up for by the fact that so many people wrote to him um, to say, you know, people he hadn't heard from for, you know, 20, 30 years, that he had been important to them in, in various stages of their lives. And I think there's so much support and so much, so much love shown to him um, by people he had he'd probably not thought about, to say nothing of the people, of course, who were closer to him. Mm. But I, I, think it, I think it must have made a, a big difference. I think they were, both my parents were surprised and touched by you know, by, by how many people care about them. Mm, it's and lovely. It, 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 was, it, was really, it was really moving um, for and, me as and well. And unexpected. I, I yeah. And, yeah. And, and unexpected. You never yeah. know, you know, I mean, I, you, you put something on the internet. Um, right. And you just never know yes. what's going to come back. And I, I, I was, I, I found it in, incredible, the, the amount. You know, people, complete strangers who wrote to me, um, some of whom in Paris saying, you know, I live not so far from from the place you describe, I'd be happy to bring your parents something or check in on them, mm. Mm. Um, which, is, which is remarkable. I mean, and, and in many ways, I think I was more moved by, by the, the people who had no connection to me or to my parents who were, who were willing to do that. Mm. Um, somebody, somebody wrote and, and offered to hold up a sign saying that, that he was praying for my parents out in front of their apartment. <laughs> Which um, I think would have been alarming to my parents, but I still struck me as, 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 incre as incredibly, incredibly um, generous. And you know, the, the, these things, these things were, I think they they, they were, um, they were important to, to both my parents and, mm. and to me. Mm. Well, I think in some ways you wrote a very restrained. Um, Oh, shall we say love letter, which is a, but but to your parents and and yeah. and to the and to their lives. And you know, one of the things that comes through too is your father's love for Paris, but your love for mm. Paris. 
Um, yeah. And I thought that, that that had been something he had handed off to you. I mean, it's it. I felt that I was in Paris in the few lines mm. that you're, you're talking about it. And it seems to me that that's something that you both share deeply. Yeah, and your mother. Absolutely. And your mother. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a city that, is, that has been very important to me for a long time. And I lived there for a long time, as you know. Um, right. Yeah. And it's a place I, 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 I think um, we may return to, uh, to live. Oh, so right. I... And and I you know I, I think it's a it's a very different place for my dad than it is for me, um, and it's um, I don't know it's 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 strange it's it's now impossible for me to be there without in some way thinking of thinking of my dad and and it, something else that's been really lovely is that a lot of those those friends of mine who I've known for for you know many 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 years and who are some of the closest friends I have have sort of adopted my parents. Mm, in, and 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 it, it, that's that's been something that I've 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 found incredibly heartening. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you if there's anything that you are reading now or that you reread regularly for solace, or that has been in your soul for you know x number of years. Something to pass on. It's like passing on in this dark in the dark days titles and poems and things to each other. What is on your shelf? Um, well, let's see. I, recently, I've been I'm, I'm I've been reading a lot of John Berger um, mm-hmm. because I, I'm writing and I'm writing a novel that that is that is in some ways was about about art and and I find him to be um, someone I can read over and over and over again. And I have a, mm-hmm. a his book Art and Revolution, which I've just read for the second time, and um, a collection of his selected essays, which I, I you know before I write and when I when I can't write anymore, I just sort of open it and will read from the middle. Um, so he's he's somebody that I, I return to a lot. And uh, there's a there's a book that that, that I read recently. Um, I guess not that recently now, but which is one of the most moving books about reading that I've ever read called Am I Alone Here by Peter Orner, who's a writer I admire. Oh, I'm so deal. glad you said that because somebody else recommended it and I'd forgotten about it and I haven't read it and, I've, and I think there will oh, be a lot of people that haven't. Lovely. Yeah I, I, yeah, I mean, I think he's, he's sort of criminally undervalued and, mm-hmm. and somebody who, should, who deserves a, great, a lot more attention than he gets. Um, and that book in particular is, I mean, he's a wonderful fiction writer as well. And this is, this is a kind of strange memoir about, um, it, it shares a lot in common, I think, with, the, with Henry Cole's book in that mm-hmm. it deals with, with um, literature and, and solitude and loneliness and the mm-hmm. ways in which books can, can and cannot, um, you know, be, be company. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? I just finished reading uh, Another Country, James Baldwin's uh, novel, um, which which is remarkably ahead of its time in so many ways, and um, the friend by Sigrid Nunez, I I I really liked that novel. I did too. Um, I liked that a lot. Uh, I thought that was uh, you know surprising and and funny and moving. I, I I just I I think this has been so happy for me to to hear your voice and it's always a treat. I I love to hear people read their words. And thank you for talking to me and letting me invade oh, your so life much, and your heart. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Anytime. Honestly. All right, Sandra. Well, I hope I see you soon back in Sun Valley. Not this summer, of course. Me too. But 
2021, no, I'm, please. I'm, ca- I'm counting on 2021. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes as well as installments of SVWC Now, our new series of video conversations, at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. Wherever you are, we hope you and your loved ones are staying safe. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shilliday and the Network Studios. 